welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast, and I'm your host, Brendan O'Neill. I'm a Canadian expat living in Phuket, Thailand, and Fruiting Body is a medicinal mushroom company. Our intentions of this podcast is to connect with people living on the island and share their stories with you. This is episode 14 with Norman Lynch. Norman is a business development tycoon. Uh, I've met Norman a few years back on the golf course, and uh, I've probably had, I don't know, maybe 100 rounds with him. I can't even count. Uh, Norman is a great character, and actually I'll probably be having him back on the podcast again at some point. Uh, he's been in the business world, uh, not just in property development, um, but, you know, he's had his uh, many irons on the fire. Um He's been in Phuket, I believe, since 2000, so he can share uh, some of the stories pre-post-tsunami and also during the current situation. Norman, thanks for joining us today. No problem, no problem. Yeah, now, uh, I, I know this is something you wouldn't regularly do, but Correct. maybe I've convinced you by having a few drinks in the past to get on this. <laughs> yeah, you got me when I was drunk. <laughs> yeah, I got you when we had a, a couple drinks. Um, so, uh, we'll make this really simple and just dive into it. Well, let's start off um, with a quick introduction about yourself, who you are, and uh, where you've come from, and what brought you to where you are now. You want to start at the beginning? Yeah, let's start, start right right at the beginning, maybe even from um, where were you born, maybe a little bit uh, a background under okay. your family, and let's lead that up um, into your first business venture. Okay, born in London by Welsh parents. They'd come up from Wales because there was no work down there, and they moved up in the 50s and something like that. And uh, I'm from a family of seven kids. Yep. Four girls, three boys. I'm the middle of the three boys, and all the four girls are older. Uh, and we had a very rough upbringing in many, many ways. My father, I never knew, worked because he had uh, multiple cirrhosis, so he couldn't work. My mother was a seamstress. And made money by, whereas the kids went to bed at night time, she would get her gear out and start making dresses for people and stuff like that. So that's the background to the, an early age, yeah? Yep. Then we had ten years of schooling, of which I lost five. So when I was actually in school, I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. So mm -hmm. The education was pretty poor. I think we need to pu push it up a bit. A little bit. A little bit closer. It's a little bit closer. Uh... Yeah, whatever more is more, is that comfortable for you? Yes, right. Okay, yeah, that's better because that I just you? find, yeah, it's more like when you're not so close, like uh, because it's so directional, that's to stop things like the air con, that it will, you'll kind of fade okay. yeah, in. Yeah. But I think that's okay. Let's try that there. That's yeah, fine. Continue. So your your, your mother was a seamstress and uh, you're talking about uh, you missed five years of your, your education. And therefore, and when I was at school, I knew nothing that was going on really. Too Too much... I missed too much. So you, you weren't going to school from age pretty much five to ten? Five to ten, yeah. Five to ten. And then during that time, you're learning at home. And I remember we were talking. You've, you've explained this story to me in the past as well. No, I was in hospital most of the yeah. time. So wasn't at home doing anything. But anyway, the, the love of money came back because it gave me security. And that was the reason. Yeah. So I started things like normal kids do with the paper round. I had two paper rounds in the morning, one in the evening. Uh, I'd start selling papers on a Thursday when the paper shop was closed uh, and you could make a few quid extra by doing things like that. On a Saturday, eve uh, Friday evening, I'd go down to Jackman's and Greengrocers and worked on that. I worked all day Saturday in the Greengrocers as well. The only day off was Sunday other than the two paper rounds in the morning and a paper round in the evening. So that was how we set about. 
left school at 15 and had a very interesting job for less than a year. Yep. And that was we worked. I worked for J. Arthur Rank. J. Arthur Rank at, the, at that time was the biggest filmmaker in, in England, you know, in Britain. And I was a, a messenger in their head office, 38 South Street, Mayfair, which is still there today. Yeah? And through that met a lot of uh, beautiful people. Girls mainly, right? Very <laughs> nice, very good. I uh, won't say too much about that, I don't think. But there, and I left there about a year later and went uh, into flooring, just simply laying floors. Yeah? What, what got you into that, in going into flooring? Was it a connection? Was it a passion? The need for money. I need needed the job. Yep. And it was clear that the job I was doing wasn't where the actual money was. And at that time, the only people doing all these timber floors, beautiful timber floors, were the Italians. And there was a big guy who used to come into the factory where I worked. I wanted to get outside. Uh, and Tony Cattoli, a man of about 18, 19 stone with big popping eyes, right? And I started running little favours for him. And I said to him one day, listen, Tony, I want to get out and earn some money. So I'm here. So he simply went in the office and he just said to the guy, the Norman's coming to with me and, uh, and we're going to go, go out and we're going to do some work. Yeah? This is the Italian guy then. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm guessing started, that's your accent. So he right? started working, yeah? Yeah. And normally in the building industry, summertime you're busy, Wintertime, very, very little. I worked with them, and this company I worked with under Tony Cotelli was the Metropolitan Flooring Company. A few years later, they ran short of work. I moved into a company called Davis, uh, Davis Flooring. And wh what year is this? Or this would be 16... Early 70s. Early 70s. Okay. Worked under a piece master in Davis Flooring. I was at then 19, his son, 31, 32. And after a few years, he asked me, the police master, to go into business with his son. And I said, no. Oh, he wanted 5,000 quid for doing so, right? And I said, no, mm. I'm not paying for that. He said, well, do it for nothing. Go in with Joe. And I said, no, I don't want to. He said, why not? I said, because Joe's a nice guy, but he's a lazy guy. Mm. And he's no good in business. I know that. Right? I was only 19 at the time. So he sacked me. So I went home. And I remember my mum saying to me, You've got to get up early in the morning. I said, no, I've just been sacked. She said, well, we need money. I said, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. The peace master came around my house on the Sunday. He sat me on the Friday night, came around on the Sunday. and said, look, why won't you go with Joe? I said, he's no good in business. You know that. You're trying to get rid of him on me. I said, but I'll tell you, I'll do it under one circumstance. He just signed a contract in Wolverhampton, and it was the largest wood block floor ever laid off of one line. Now, that won't mean anything to you, but what I mean is this. If you laid this room here, which is quite small, the woodblock herringbone pattern, yeah, pattern, and you were slightly offline. You'd never reach the wall. This room was so big that the two formers running it ran on bicycles around the place. It was enormous, right? Mm. And he first told me to get lost, and then he thought about it. He said, "Okay, come in." And I used him and all his Italian relatives to lay the floors, right? And we started work there. That was the age of nineteen, and uh, we did some interesting work down there as well. And I remember we had a job, a uh, holiday camp. And I was getting men down there to work for nothing, simply to, so they could tell their wives they were, they were coming to work for down to, with me for the weekend, yeah? We were, in fact, doing the floors in Pontins holiday camp on the coast. And there was... We were all young guys then, and lots of young women. Uh, where, where, was, where was this located in the UK? That Outside be, of London, or...? No, on the coast, yeah. I'm right on the seaside. Okay. 
So we were getting guys to come down, and the deal I did with them was this. I'll ring your wife until I need help. You'll come down Saturday morning or Friday night, up to you. We've got all the chalets so we can sleep, and that isn't a problem. Because mm-hmm. the, the holiday club was open. Part of it was open already. Yeah? But I'm not going to pay you, and you'll work till 4 o'clock Friday, Saturday afternoon. You'll have Saturday night, Friday night, and all day Sunday to yourself. So I was getting the work done for nothing. Yeah? So that proved to be quite good. And we did this for several times, and then after a couple of years, Joe was just getting lazier and lazier. This was just to get give the guys an excuse to get away from the weekend. Yeah. And, sorry, they actually did the work for you, but yeah. unpaid, so it's... Yeah, it's good for me, <laughs> obviously, right? I gotcha. Yeah. But now, the, the, the guy that was running the holiday camp had ordered the flooring. And I don't know why, how he got this from, but he ordered far too much, but he didn't know it. Yeah. So not only we had that little bonus going on, we were also working with other places and taking this flooring and laying in other shops for nothing sort of thing. But I wasn't charged. I was get, getting it for nothing, then we charge you good money for it. Anyway, after a little, little while, I split up with, with Joe uh, for personal reasons. I won't go into that too much, but we, we, we split up on personal reasons. And I'll never forget, we, were, we had a bad, bad winter. Second winter we were in business. And he said to me one day, you know, we've got £3.50 in the bank. We can go and watch the guns and never own a film. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, we've only got three, three and a half quid. We can both go and watch this film. I said, I tell you, you take the three and a half quid, give me my one pound fifty, whatever it is, and I'm going to go out. And I went to a company called Viker Stevens and Adams. And I got a contract that afternoon, which was going to last at least two years. The next day, Joe said, you should have come and seen that film. I said, well, I did something slightly different, Joe. I got us work for the next two years. Oh, God, he didn't seem interested at all. Mm. Cut a long story short, I gave him that contract and I moved to Bristol. I went up to Bristol and I worked for... Uh, At this point, you're, you're running and operating your own business. Yeah, I've been... I've been well, and under a Peacemaster, you don't actually work for a Peacemaster, you work for yourself and just yeah. get paid for what you do. And it's just, pure, it's just flooring, yeah. so you're, you're, kind well, of, you're a, a contractor, a, a part of the entire operation. Yeah. So he moved to uh, Bristol for a while. That didn't last long. I was selling kids' encyclopedias up there, yeah? Earning good money at it, by the way, yeah? Because, again, what I did, they had a routine whereby 10 guys would go into a big town or a big city and raid it, yeah? And every time you knocked on the door, you were supposed to do, say, 20 demonstrations a day, for which you'd give seven or eight demonstrations, which you might pick up on or two orders. And I thought, this is hard work for nothing. Mm. So I left him, and I, I stayed with George Lewis, but I left that team, and I got a mini car, and I was going around the, the farmers. I'd see four a day, sell to three of them, and it was a big... For, for, for that time, it was big, big money. And selling these encyclopedias. Now, you're, you're, selling, encyclopedias. you're selling the whole set? Yeah, what, the whole set. What was the, the cost? What would it be equivalent to today, in today's value, you're selling these encyclopedias for? 750 quid. 750 quid in your commission, you're taking 20, 30% on that? You're taking 20% on that. Okay. So it was big money. And you're getting, where's the distributor? You're just getting directly from Encyclopedia. I worked there. Again, you work for yourself, but you, you, you're working for George Noons, yeah. the encyclopedia people. So I did that for six, seven months, got fed up with that, came back to London. And I got a job selling uh, Hilti, ballistic fixings. What is that? They're a ballistic fixing tool for the for building trade. Okay. In other words, you, you, see, you see the Hilti vans around here as well. They're all over the world. 
They took on 40 new guys, did Hilti, because they had just taken off of a company called UCAN the right to use Hilti guns in England. Yeah? So again, there were 40 new guys. And again, working around and suddenly thought, this is hard work, one needs a shortcut to something. And I noticed when they told us that if a gun, if you sell somebody a gun, you don't make your money on the gun, you make your money on the fixings, on mm-hmm. the bullets and the, and the fixings themselves, yeah? And the guns you could repair for nothing. So I used to go into the uh, store shop and say, look, give me two of these, two of these. And I was making guns up and giving them to people, giving them to big builders, yeah? And I remember giving six or seven guns to Wimpy, massive guns. These guns are, are used for, for what? It's for the construction or it's, what, what do you mean? I, I don't understand that part. Okay. There's different types of guns for different purposes. And they're driven by bullets, like a gun. Yeah. Ballistic fixings, yeah? Where you, where you need to fix into a steel beam or something, right? Ah, okay. So the actual, like, uh, the rivet. The, yeah. The same, okay. You'd fire it in with a ballistic, with, gotcha. with a bullet, yeah? So in giving these six or seven to Wimpy, they then have to use your ballistic fixings because they won't fit any other thing else, right? So out of the 40 guys that they took on, after three or four weeks, I was, I was the only one on a bonus. I was earning good money at it again because we did that. So I did that for a while. And at the same time, I still wanted to go back into flooring. So I was going to customers, which were shop fitters and builders, and giving them my card, which I called advanced flooring, for the business, right? knowing I was going to leave Hilti shortly anyway, which I did. And then we started off laying, laying floors, back into flooring again. So at, the, at this point, um, did you feel you were, you, at this point you're, you're still chasing that, that security. It's not, by no means necessary. You're, you're getting by, you're paying your bills. Um, but at this point you're not, uh, let's say, you know, shooting. I'm working from, from home. You're still working from home. Um, are you just getting by, or are you able to provide more at this well, point? Well, just getting... I'd, 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 by this time, I'd got married, and we had a, and I had a, a son. Yeah. And we were, just, we were struggling, yeah. It was still a struggle. That slowly got better and better. And a guy that uh, I've met in the, in the shop fitting side, when I was here selling to the Hilti stuff, came to you one day and said, no, there was a big group in London called the Hyde Group. They had stores all over the place, yeah. Not shops, stores. Yeah, like department stores. Yeah. So uh, one of the architects had asked him to do a job for him in Richmond, which was uh, going to be an off-license area where they were cutting wooden butts, you know, beer butts down. Yep. And he came to me and said, no, well, I wouldn't mind doing this job, but I've got no money. Can you, would you back me? So I said, yeah, okay. Halfway through that, the guy was enjoying the job that we were doing in the, the, these two guys that I employed to do work for me yeah, were pretty good. And the shop fitting side really started from that. Within a few years, we were employing, I don't know, 20 guys in shop fitting. They're still doing the flooring. Yep. And that was then the start of the grouper companies. Was this the start of your shop fitting business? Mm. And from this, this contract? getting involved because this guy, he needed financial backing for his stores, mm-hmm. which you could give him uh, proper payment terms. And essentially now, how many stores did you initially start shop fitting and, and where did that Just lead in to? Just in one big store. Just one big store. Yeah. The Hyde Groove in Richmond. Okay. 
And approximately, what what is the size of that? Like square meter, square. Well, footage? the shop itself was, let's say, three times bigger than your studio here. But so the actual store would have been oh, one hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred fifty thousand square feet. Okay. And all we were doing bits of shopping there. Yeah. I then moved from a place called Leafton to where we lived for a long time in Leverstock Green. And where is this? Because I'm sure, unless you're from the UK, this might be hard to... Okay, so I've moved out. I've moved out from moved, I, I was living in uh, Cricklewood still. And where is that located? Is it, is it, That's is where it, I was born, in Cricklewood. This is Wales Northwest, or London? No, North, Northwest London. Northwest London, okay. And was living in a place called Melrose Avenue. We moved out of there to Leavesden, where we bought, well, I bought my first house, which cost, I think, about 5,250 quid at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a townhouse with three stories, rather like your staircase, winding up and down all yeah. day long. Yeah? <laughs> Met some people there, just become neighbours, I guess, really. And again, one of them came to me and said, no, would you mind coming into business with me? I've got a building business, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, what for? He said, well, I just think it might be good. So uh, we needed a factory for that. And I got a deal in St Albans on a great big factory of, what, something like about 12,000 square feet. And bear in mind, I was working from home up till then, right? And office section as well. His son, after about a year of being with this particular guy, I won't name him, his son left college, or university, I should say, uh, took a business course. Came into me one day, and we weren't doing very good at this business because he was in the building game, not shop fitting. I, I was earning more money out of shop fitting. The, the margins were bigger in shop fitting than they were in the building trade, yeah. And uh, his son left this, this university, and Eric came to me one day and said, Norman, uh, I want to leave. I said, fine, what do you want to do? He said, well, I'm going to go with my son because he's in business college, he knows what he's doing, and uh, we're going to take the business with us, if you don't mind. I said, Okay. I said, before you, before you do it, and let me say this to you, you should, you're making a mistake. And you'll remember you'll say this one day, right? Mm. He said, oh, no, I'm, I'm okay. So him and his son went, left me, and I was in this great big factory now again on my own. A year later, he went skint. And, I, and he owed me money for jobs I'd done for him mm-hmm. in his new business with his son. So I went down to his office in Rickmansworth, he was, which isn't far from St Albans. And I'm looking through his files at anything worth having because he's gone skin. And I saw a, a file there which was Green Shield stamps in Daventry. Daventry was Green Shield's head office for distribution. And he was supposed to build some internal offices for them. But he'd gone... He'd Again, shop fitting these Shop fitting, yeah. yeah. It was part of shop fitting. Yep. So I took that file... And I rang the architect for Greenshield Stamp, which was in Edgware. And I said, do you hear that Eric's gone skinny? He said, oh, no, he said, Christ. I said, I've just put the, he's quoting and he was the cheapest. I said, well, don't worry. I'll do it for the same money. He said, well, let's meet. So I met him and I said, look, here's the quote. It's exactly the same money and I'll take care of things. So he said, good, thanks very much. So we did it. And this guy was... I shouldn't mention names, I don't think. It might not be fair to me. But he said yeah. to me one day, hey, this, is, this is good, Norman. It's a lovely job, and thanks very much. And I gave him a couple of grand for doing mm. it, yeah? He said, listen, Greenshaw Stamps has really come into an end. And the Mr. Tompkins, who owned Greenshaw Stamps, 
is moving into a thing called Argos. I said, what the hell is that? He said, it's a showroom where you get a magazine, you order what you like, and you walk in the shops, it's catalogue selling, but in the, sh- in the shop, right? He said, and the object is we're going to build hundreds of things over England. Do you want to come in and be one of the six tendered for these works? I said, yeah. We got our first job in Argus now, in Bedford. And the deal was simple. You had 20 weeks to completely, from brand new, build a shop here. Yep. There was a penalty. For every week we were late, the penalty was something like about 10,000 quid a week. Yep. Because they were losing their business. So I said, okay, but if I've finished before, I want 10,000 quid extra. So we, we argued over it for a few weeks and then we agreed this deal. Just as we were finishing this Bedford store, which we finished in about 16 or 17 weeks, and on top of the price that we were getting, they'd owed me 30,000 quid, yeah? Mm. The chief architect died for Argos, right? Strange circumstances of his death, and again, we won't go into that one, but anyway, he was, he was dead. I took a second job in Watford, and we were due to open this a week after Christmas. Mm-hmm. On Christmas Eve, I had a phone call from the office to say, look, you better get down to Watford, there's a problem. When I drove into Watford, there were fire engines everywhere. Now, this store was, let's say... 10,000, 15,000 square feet, ground floor and basement, so 30,000 square feet, big shops, right? So the number of men we're now employing is growing all the time. I got there and the fire stack, these, all these fire engines were trying to, we'd created a swimming pool in the basement. The plumber, had, I was going to say, fucked up, yeah. messed up, right? Oh, the, yeah, the plumber Massive messed. big swimming pool, Jesus Christ. Now, the, bear in mind, the deal was, if you're, if you're late, you'll never get another job off us. So the firemen finished their job, and the funny thing was, I couldn't help laughing at it. Next door, we were next door to uh, Littlewoods, a big department store, and they had a Father Christmas there for Christmas Eve. And he was the only Father Christmas on Christmas Eve out of work because he couldn't get in his place. We'd flooded the bloody thing. Shame on him, but everyone else. week later, we're getting ready for this job, and it's winter time. It's snowing outside, and I've gone over to make sure everything is spotless, right? I mean, built a beautiful job. We had good, we had good guys working for it. So you were able to yeah. easily clear out the, the water from the basement? No, the, 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 the firemen took days doing that, and then we put in dehumidifiers, and we worked 24 hours a day just to get ready, because right? I didn't want to be late, because that meant we got no more work off this company. Yeah? Wasn't the client going to be concerned with mold? I mean, this stuff cracks into the... I can't, that, 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 that didn't matter at the time. Yeah. So the night we're op- before we're opening, it's snowing, and I'm there making sure everything's spotlessly clean. Yeah? The guy knocks on the door, covered in snow, looked a bit scruffy, actually. And I said, sorry, mate, we're closed. We don't open till tomorrow. He knocked on the door again. I said, I just told you, we're not open yet. We're opening in the morning. He walked away, he came back, he walked again. I said, would you fuck off and leave me alone? I'm trying to get... He knocked on the door again, and with that, the architect came out. He said, that's our chairman. Went, oh, so he walked in, wet feet, right across this beautiful floor. I'd just been cleaning and all that sort of business, yeah. 
He said, were you Norman Lynch? I went, yeah. He said, I heard you were an arrogant bee. I said, yeah, I've heard something about you. So, and off he went and looking around the shop and he came back. He said, you're going to be ready, aren't you? I said, yep. He said, fancy a beer? I said, yeah. So the two of us alone went for a beer and we became very good friends very, very quickly. We built for Argus. We worked for Argus 19 years. And we were building these shops all over the place. And that was where the company really started coming together. Mm-hmm. Stories I shouldn't really tell you. I can, I can tell you I other, think another time, but not, <laughs> not, in, front of, not in front of cameras, yeah? Don't worry, we, no one's watching. <laughs> yeah, they fucking might be. Maybe in <laughs> 10 years. Don't worry about it. Yeah. He, uh, well, he's dead now, so I can talk about him. And, mm. and he said to me one day, Norman, our chief architect, you know, you commit suicide. I said, yeah, I know. He said, and this, this is a massive program we're doing. For some reason, Tom McCall, if that was the chairman's name, and I got on very, very well together, the Irishman, and was rated at that time to be possibly the best retail in, in England, retailer in England. So he met one day in a boozer, and he said to me, look, I, uh, I'm bringing my missus. Have you got one? I said, yeah. He said, why don't you bring along we'll have an evening now? I want to talk to you about something. And we were discussing what was going to go ahead with Argus and stuff of that sort of nature. We met regularly, and he then rang me one day and he said, Norman, you, these quotes are coming in, and this is typical of the building trade. Let's say you, you get a figure of 750000 for an identical job, or supposed to be an identical job, another job is a million, and the variance was massive. He said, I can retail but I can't control the capital spending. It's just, it's crazy. Can you tell me what I can do? I said, what, tonight? He went, yeah. I said, could you tell me how to retail tonight? He went, no, it's complicated, it takes years. I said, so is capital spending, it takes years. Mm. He said, can you control it for us? I said, yeah. We need to put certain things into place, which we did. How long would it take to get into a reasonable, say, a 5%, 10%, on either side of the scale. And within three months, we got that working properly. Without telling them what we did, we did what we did, and it was good what we did. And we did, we say, worked there 19 years. And I used to sit down with Tom McCall uh, quite often looking at the, the capital expenditure and to keep that capital expenditure under control that was viable for them. Yeah? Everyone they, they employed on their board was, in fact, a retailer of one form or another, other than the estates manager. But he was only short-lived on the, on the, uh, in the border anyway. So we worked there for 19 years and we, we started doing all bigger contracts and all that sort of thing. At this, so at this point, you're running your own, your own business. You have your own, you have your own shop-fitting factory with uh, how many employees at this stage? At, that, at the early stage of, of Argus, let's say we had by then 30 or 40. Yeah. We then moved into larger premises. Again. Oh, and by the way, let me go back on a story. So when... Eric Fortune went skin, and I picked up this contract with uh, Green Shield. He started another business where he was working with a company called Umdash. And he came back to me again and said, sorry about what happened before, let's get together again. So I give him a job working with us or on one division only, because I have several divisions by then, right? 
And he said to me, Rhonda, and we started working together, him running his, his division under my wing, yeah? And he said to me one day, I never understand, Norman. I did the dirty on you. I took all the business into much cheaper overheads, left you with expensive overheads and very little business. How did you survive and I didn't? I said, well, do you remember when I said to you, you're making a mistake? He said, yeah, but why? I said, because the moment you moved out, I didn't need that fucking big factory, and I sold, and I sold the lease for 150,000 quid. He went, oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> he was slightly upset about it, yeah? And that 150,000 was what allowed me to start really plowing some money back into the appeals group, as it was then, right? And we had, we had uh, advanced floors in part of the group, but, but the group was called appeals. And, and, and what what would have that 150 back then? It must have been worth maybe a, not a million, no. half a million, half, half a million, yeah, something like that. Yeah, but it was enough to to get us at this to point. Buy you, it give, it's giving you cash flow. You, you're more flexible. You can kind I mean, of. Then we need bigger premises, and yeah. we did. You know, we, we and we needed to build now a, a proper workshop. Yeah, mm. which we had in Luton, which was again a big one, fifty thousand square feet, something of that nature. But more importantly, we had a, a, an empty shell by our side that we could rent, which was 100,000 square feet, because we started building units in, in there and sending them all around the world, yeah? We were talking yesterday to your Bruce yep. about Watson's. We were building Watson's chemists at one time for, Hong, for Singapore, building them in Luton. And shipping them over. Making sure they all fitted and sending them over. We bought a studio, massive pseudo, not like this, a sound studio for Eddie Grant. Yep. Sent out to Barbados or wherever he, wherever he lived. And the, the company was growing. By now we had maybe, an excess, we were building up to only several hundred people, approaching a thousand people, yeah. It was a good business, but cash flow was bad in the days. The big companies just wouldn't pay you. And we what were, were their, their payment terms? Would it, would it, was there a, like a 50% down or were they giving you like net 90 on the final? This, this, isn't, this wasn't Thailand, this was England. And you got no deposit at all. You put in applications as the, as the job went on for your money. And it was those applications that would feed on. But what happened also in the late 80s, there was a big money crunch under Maggie Thatcher. And the... the Profitability was reduced terribly. When I started in shop fitting, we could get 25% profit. Mm. 10, 15 years later, you, you, were, you were lucky to get 2.5% profit. It was, it was getting really, really tight. So I decided to move into property development. And I saw a thing in the paper, a, a property developer had just gone skint. And I had an office in... Uh, for the flooring company in uh, Norwood, Northwood. And just beside Northwood, there was, a, there was an old barn that was falling down. And I bought it. And I bought it off him for 19000 Cash, because he was going to get what he did, he did the money here. Mm. I spent about one hundred and fifty grand on it and sold it then for four hundred fifty grand. And it was an old barn. What, did you, what were you I turning it into? Into offices. Into offices. And I leased it to company called Boise Cascade. Boise Cascade is actually a town in America and all they do is wood products. They grow the forests, they chop the trees down and they make everything you can imagine out of timber. Mm -hmm. I sold that then for 450 grand to a pension fund that was a joint pension fund between Benskins Brewery and Vauxhall Motors. They bought it. 
just as we were about to sign the contract for that, the agent acting for me arranged the meeting with the pension funds, me, him, and he said, look, I've got to tell you this. I know we're about to sign, but somebody's offered you 50 grand more. I said, no, we've done the deal. The deal is the deal. We can sign it now. And I'll, t- I'll tell you that because it's relevant to something that happens a long time later. Yeah? Mm. So we did it. And we carried on then. I brought another site down in uh, Beckenham where we built offices down there. And this site started to grow. So at, at this <laughs> point, it kind of, it, it went from, uh, you're, you're in the building material side, you're in flooring, which led to shop fitting. Um, you have, uh, you've reached nearly a thousand employees that are now doing your shop fitting. That could be anything from admin to QC to laborers to people in the factory. A lot. Right? Logistics and counting, whatever. It's the, it's the, whole, the, the whole shebang. The, and then from there, you're doing this shop fitting that grew from Argos, just to kind of recap the whole story, um, which ex- probably, say what, times 10, times 100 the business, essentially. From, and then from this shop fitting, you decided, you know what, let's get into the property development side. So the, the point of uh, why I'm recapping that is, at this point when you're doing the property development, are you also doing the shop fitting? You're doing oh, yeah. both? Okay. Oh, yeah, doing both. Okay. By then we had maybe seven or eight companies, which is also great. Each division had a CEO, so he looked after it properly. I mean, for instance, we were, we were approached by a company from Edinburgh that said, look, uh, we haven't got enough work. Uh, can you buy us? Do you want to buy us? So I went up there. They had a terrific uh, workshop, which we needed again. So we ended up buying that company. And the first contract we signed after that was uh, the big retailer for books in England. What's he called? Which, w- w- uh, Weatherstones. Mm. We did the first 50 Weatherstones. And they manufactured all the goods up in Edinburgh shipped them down, and we've refitted the shops down there. So we did all stuff like that. And by then, we were were working for lots of companies. So you're continuing. You're still doing the shop fitting and the property development, and it's it's simultaneous. What what was your role at this stage? Are you you overseeing all the operations of all the divisions? Yeah. And Each one, for instance, the guy that came to me, uh, uh, that went skint, he then was going bankrupt again for the third, second or third time. Did you want to, do you want me to pass you a drink? Or you, no, I'm all right. All right. So I said, and just before he told me this, he said, look, I, he was working with this company called Gundash. They're the largest module of shop fitters in the world at that stage. We'd arranged to go over and see them because he owed them money. And again, the morning we were going, he said, I'm not going. He said, uh, I'm keeping it. I'm, I'm going on my own. I said, I'm going to Umdash today. And if you don't come with me, I'll take the business off you. Mm. He said, you won't, because they won't have it. So I flew to Austria, Amstetten. To Me- uh, Austria? Yeah. This is, uh, this is where Umdash is? Yeah. Okay, sorry. I, okay. Austrian company. Yeah. Okay. place called Umdash. There's a company called Umdash in uh, Amstetten. So I said to the chairman, look, owes your money, he's got no money. I want to take the business over. So he's listening, listening. He said, no, and I'll tell you what I'll do. The money he owes you, you're not going to get. He hasn't got it. I'll write you out a check now. So we went for dinner. 
typical Austrian style dinner. It's very good food. We ended the day, said Norman, business is yours. So we now have a joint venture partnership going, which the, the, the lawyers tied up, with the largest shop fitting, modular shop fitting company. When I say modular, there's two types of shop fitting, basically, right? Modular where you build out a hotel and the reception area and the restaurants are unique to that particular thing, right? The bedrooms, however, are all modular. Just cabinets. Cabinets, 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 all that stuff. You're right? just sliding it kind of, is it almost even Ikea style where you're putting it together, sliding it in, or is it, are they, no, is it already made, coming? Made, everything's made to a certain size. Size, yeah? okay. And that's how we did it. So that was another company we were doing. But that you must you must face some uh, issues with maybe getting it through certain door sizes, getting on an elevator, especially if you're bringing large, let's say, wardrobes into uh, I don't know the tenth floor of a hotel. It all comes as packages, and you assemble it on site. Okay, yeah. it's quite simple, really. But it wasn't. It was a, it's all very complicated. But, but right now we're growing and growing all the, all the time. Yeah, yeah. And we were doing work with Selfridges. When the bomb went off in Selfridges, the early morning bomb went off at six o'clock in the morning. By nine o'clock in the morning, we had men down there. What is that? Sorry, early morning bomb. Bomb. A bomb. The IRA was still prevalent at the time. Okay. And they blew Harrods up. They blew a section of Harrods up. Okay. Harrods is a million square feet, but yeah. they blew a section up on the main road. So we helped put that right. And we were doing a lot of work by then for Harrods anyway on different areas of stuff, yeah. So the whole business was growing, and I was really now concentrating on the uh, development side because as I went, went round the shop fit, one of the directors said to me at one of the board meetings, Norman, you've got to start sacking these people. He said, I said, they're no fucking good. He said, I know, but they're the best we can get. You're sacking them quicker than I can employ them. So give me half a chance, would you? I said, right, and I was getting more interested in the development side where there was proper money anyway, yeah. And we did, I don't know, we did uh, some soft softs in the West End. We did development in the West End. I then bought a site that we called Centec, which was uh, from the from early stages saying uh, the barn was about 4,000 square feet. Centec was 150,000 square feet, 200,000 square feet, yeah. Up until the time we, uh, the last one I ever bought was uh, Houghton Hall Park which was uh, 650,000 square feet. So you're buying the, these properies, you're fitting them, and then they're you're... Sites. And, and they're they're sites. sites. And then you're leasing them out to businesses They're for greenfield sites. Yeah. We build a building, rent the, the idea is rent them out to people. But then the crash of 90... After I bought this Houghton Hall Park, took us about 18 months. And the reason the story earlier on was relevant about the, the barn... Houghton Hall Park was owned by the same two pension funds, Benskins and Vauxhall Motors. And it was the guy from uh, uh, Benskins Brewery that said to our agent that we still had what Norman did all them years ago, I want him to try and win this if he can. Now, it was big. You know, the, as a finished product, the 650,000 square feet would have been worth seven, eight hundred million quid, yeah? And first of all, I thought it's going to be tricky because the biggest developers in England were after it as well. I put my scheme forward. We employed a good team of architects and a good team of quantity surveyors and everyone else around us who were now working for us anyway. Yeah? 
And I was getting fed back little snippets of information that was yep. made hand across off the one man to, for the story. To understand how to quote correctly. No, 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 that we knew. We had ex we employed our own QSs by then, all sorts of things. Right? The company was now 1,500 strong. Yeah. No, uh, it simply wanted to look after the area. Mm. In other words, he, he had a style of building he had in mind. He didn't want to ruin it, you know, because uh, Hount Hall Park is a mansion. So he gave me hints as to what might look nice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. For instance, when we when we bought it, eventually we, we won the we won the, the tender. Yeah. We put a reflective pond in, which is about 150 foot long, and it reflected Houghton Hall Park itself, house dimension. Yeah. And we built around that, so that was quite good. But then the crash came in '91. We got slaughtered, absolutely slaughtered. So, let, yeah, let's talk about that because we had that conversation before. I think it, it's quite interesting. Um, and we can explain why, how that crash affected you. But I'm going to, and we, I don't think we dug too deep into it, but I, I'm assuming it's because you have taken out loans and you're financing this property development. So you're relying on certain interest rates. And if those go too high you can go skin it so is that this is kind of the story and what happened exactly short period of time because and again this is the early what year are we talking now <coughs> we're early talking about 90? late 80s now late 80s okay. late 80s yeah so explain explain that more in detail how that affected everyone and how it's still affecting people today it affected a lot of people the interest rates on the short in a short period went from three percent to a very maximum of just under 18 percent but settled for a while at 15%, for a long time at 15%. This meant our gearing at the time was about 45%, so loan to value. The biggest developers in the, in the industry at that time, their gearing would be 85 95%, so our gearing was pretty low. But we weren't a public company. And in fact, we had, I'd, started, I'd made moves. I was approached by brokers to take the company public two years earlier there was no SPACs then and to launch a company onto the public market in England took a long long time it would have taken about at least two and a half to three years to get us on the market yeah? mm -hmm. and we were in the process of that when we were also approached by John Langs which was a massive company much bigger than us so tens of thousands of employees wanted to buy us and we were tossing around it took longer than maybe we should have done to organise the, the, the company going public because of uh, Have a sip, don't choice, worry. maybe of sending out to John Lang. That part we can. Uh, yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, don't worry. And if you're slouching too, you can fix yourself up because it's not live, so we can. Yeah, edit it. Yeah, it's it's like a quick cut. He knows what to do. Yes, it's a free flow. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bit what? It's a just free free, free flow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's so long. It's it's. We try to make it's just a natural conversation. So if yeah. people are moving around, I mean that's normal. Yeah. What do they? The what internet do you nowadays they don't care yeah, about yeah. these yeah. things. So um, so the interest rate yeah. killed a lot of people, and this is when Maggie Thatcher did something which has affected. Forget me, I'm in business, and we, you're at risk all the time. Yeah, she sold off the council houses. Council houses were houses. I lived in. A, I was born in a council house. Yeah, so government housing. Government housing. Yeah where the rents were controlled, they were cheap and they were controlled. 
She sold them all off to two ownerships at a discount price. I bought our house, gave it to my mother. We had a 40% discount, which that part of it was great. The mistake she made where the man in the street was concerned, bear in mind she was selling tens of thousands of these houses, right? She put a, an embargo on the councils that they couldn't use the money that they got from the sale to build more. Her object was that if you're a house owner, you're part of the capitalist society and you'll vote Tory as opposed yeah. to Labour. Yeah? What she should have done, what she didn't do, which was a major mistake, and bear in mind when she was selling these off, the interest rates were low, 2.5-3%. Suddenly they're 15% and people couldn't afford them. And they didn't understand the liability of a mortgage. So they were going into, into the state agents and giving the keys back, which is an, a bigger mistake again, because the bank now could sell them for whatever they want to sell it for. You now owe the balance of your mortgage. Mm. People were going bankrupt because of it, and they're still suffering today because of that. And that's trick, trickling down through maybe that, that, those families' generations, and that debt's being passed to their sons and their daughters. Well, no, I mean, once you're dead, you're dead. I mean, they can't pass the debt down. No, they can't do that. But, I mean, a lot of people are still alive that, that, that had that problem, yeah? And maybe never recovered from it again. And, and we did discuss that, but I thought that was quite interesting. I, I asked you this question before. I said, why did she do that? And, and your answer was, she's not a businesswoman. She has no idea what she's doing. It wasn't that. She's a politician. Yeah. And what she wanted, she, she, her idea was, if these people are capitalists now, they'll, they'll vote Tory as opposed to Labour. Mm. I don't think she was right on that at all. And although everybody thought she was a great prime minister, I thought she made some massive mistakes. She put the likes of me and a lot of people like me, we wasted uh, 20 years of our life going bankrupt at that time. I didn't actually go bankrupt. The, 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 it was quite a big company at that time, so there were four or five uh, receivers involved, official receivers and private receivers. Not one of them accused any of the directors of my company of doing anything wrong. At that stage when we went down, we had 17 directors. <coughs> they all left. We've now got, I've got all the responsibilities of the money we owe the banks and sorting out with receivers and everyone else is gone. At this point, are the doors closed? Mm. Because you, you just don't have the cash flow to keep the operation can't keep right. Keep, can't keep it open. And at prior to that, I mean, your company was doing the best that it was ever doing. I mean, you, you have your, your, you're doing property development. You're doing the shop fitting for that. You're, 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 again, you're, buy, you're buying the land, building the buildings, and leasing it out to companies. Mm. They need to pay you back. At that point, how does that part of the operation work? Where are you, you have to, you're giving the buildings back to the bank because you can no longer afford those interest rates? Things happen, and it's strange how it backfires on you. To buy Houghton Hall Park, it cost me 19 and a half million. And I needed to borrow that. And I was doing business at the time with First Interstate of California. They wanted the, they wanted the loan. They wanted the deal, right? We needed to produce a road bond. And because 
first interstate was an American bank, they couldn't give a road bond in England. Mm-hmm. So our lawyers sent the documentation on the deal to Lloyds Bank asking for a road bond because the manager at Lloyds in Piccadilly had come to me and asked me for business. We were growing. Well, let's explain. I I have an idea of what I've dealt with surety bonds, but I have an idea of a road bond. That's basically saying like you've won the project, the projects, uh, let's let's call it 10 million for, 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 to make it simpler. But you got to put down one percent of that ten million, and if you don't build it, the bank holds it. It's kind of like in in, in an account, is no, no. A road bond is quite simple. A bank guarantees the cost of putting roads into Houghton Hall Park was eight hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, time, right. So the bond was eight hundred thousand, because if you're selling a site at the end of the of the uh, uh, selling a building at the end of the site, he's got to know he can get access to it. And if anything goes wrong before the roads are built, the bank's got the eight hundred thousand to finish the road. Okay. So that's what it was for. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. Instead of just giving me the 800,000, I was at hairdressers one morning, having my hair done, right? And the manager, Ian, rang me from Lloyd's Bank, said, no, I've got the money. I said, Ian, what are you doing? I'm soaking. Wait, Ian, have my hair cut. You know? He said, well, I thought you wanted to know. I've got 40 million for you. I said, I haven't asked you for 40 million. I've asked you for 800 grand. He said, no, I've got the whole loan. I said, oh, Jesus. All right, so... We go down to see him and we're all arranging it. And uh, had I not accepted that, and the reason I accepted it, the interest rate was the same. Because the interest rate from first, fin- first interest of California was on the paperwork. What wasn't on the paperwork was the cost of putting the loan into place. Mm. They wanted 650,000 quid in first interstate. So Ian said to me, how, how much is it to put the loan in place? I said, 150 grand. Got it. So I went half a million. I just sit on the, mm. the hairdressers that day, which, which was nice, yeah. <laughs> so we, uh, but that was, a, that was the, the main problem that put us into trouble earlier on. When we first won the contract, and paid 19.5 million for it. But you got the $40 million loan. Yeah, at this point, that was for other things and as well, not just for not just for no, the because property what they, development. We had finished other projects, and what they did, this was an open project. We hadn't yeah. started building yet, so they wanted better security. So we gave them other buildings, and they took the loan out on yeah, that as well. Understood. Too. Yeah. At, at that at that time again, it, the interest is one two percent ish. Mm. Okay. Oh, it's pretty low. Yeah. Yes. So, the day we won. Bear in mind, we'd been working on this tender for 18 months or so, over a year anyway. And I'd seen a, a, a mistake in the planning commission. Nobody said a word for over a year. We got awarded the contract one evening, and all our team, which is a big team, architects, quantity surveyors, and all that sort of stuff, electricians, you know, we're meeting at 10 o'clock in the city. Instead of going to the city, I went back to Dunstable where Houghton Hall Park was. And the p- chief planning officer was, an, again, another Welshman with a cleft. Yeah, cleft, cleft palate. Yeah, cleft palate. Yeah. And he said, hello, Mr. Lynch, how you, you won? I'm glad you got it, it's good. I said, thanks very much. I've got a problem. He said, what's the problem? I've given the planning commission. 
I said, read section so and so. All it said, this is planning commission, blah, 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 for 650,000 square feet. Doesn't sound a problem, does it? But it is. Is it net or gross? Each square foot you build is worth money. Mm. So I said to him, I want it to be net, which allows me to add another 15% on to the gross. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So instead of 650,000 square feet, it's 750,000 square feet. That was worth another six and a half value. At that stage, another six and a half million quid. Now, the day we bought it for 19 and a half, St. Quintins valued it for Lloyds Bank at 32 million. So that day, the day before I don't, 19, uh, from 19, 20, 13 million. The next day, you can add another six and a half million to that, 19 and a half million. And the, the client, the buyer at this point, they but they can make the decision to not take the, the additional square footage or No, no. No, I bought it. Yeah. I own it. Mm. And I'm saying to the planning officer, you've made a mistake. You I see, got you, you said it's six hundred and fifty thousand square feet. Now yeah. I've always read that as net and they went I knew it wasn't. Yeah. And, and then you're so people understand when you're going from net to gross, you're legally allowed to add fifteen percent. No. They made a mistake. Mm. So he called it the, the practicing lawyer in for the, for the, for the government, yeah? He said, you dropped a ghoulie. Mm. He said, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do? I said, make it gross. Make it net on me. Yeah. And I'll add the gross on. They had no choice. They didn't want it advertised, did they? So they gave me a, a new sheet that very morning with the right... Yeah, and the, and the guy that wrote the tender, he's not going to throw his, uh, you know, credibility under the no. bus either. He'll just, okay, yeah, yeah, that's what we meant. Okay. So I drive into London, and I'm three hours late for the meeting. I walk in, and the major says, I'm very surprised I'm in the morning like this that you're that late. I said, there's a blooming good reason for it, that not one of you have picked up. I said, what's that? Handed the paper and I went, bloody hell, I didn't see it. Never saw it. I said, don't worry, it's a great day. Just earned another six and a half million quid. Thanks very much. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Now let's carry on with the meeting. And, uh, but then, of course, to say some years later, about three years later, we'd built two buildings. And this, the bad thing about business generally is banks. They're not very trustworthy. Hold on a sec. Maybe tilt that a bit towards you. I think it's just the, the direction. Yeah, there you go. You can't trust them. I classify them now as robbers in pinstripe suits. When things go wrong, they really go wrong. Because even though we were in big trouble, a bank, and a German bank came to me, knew of our business, because it was public, didn't matter, they knew what we were doing, and made an offer through me to Lloyds Bank which Lloyds Bank rejected. Had they not done that, had they accepted the offer, our business would have carried on. We were, we, 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 we were in strong shape, we really were, yeah? But to demand your money on the spot, you can't do it. Not in, not in the development world. It takes years to get these things. It can take you three, four, five years to get a planning permission. Yep. So to demand money straight away is an impossible task. I just don't trust banks anymore. 
And and at at this point, this was kind of what led to your your demise of the company because you've taken out this forty million at such a low interest rate. Um, what year did this happen? So this would have been late eighties, ninety one. And then which year? You you made the deal in ninety one, and then that was 40 it months million, that, that, that later. 40, that forty million was only for that particular group of. Correct, but you still have that at that interest rate. And are you talking about six months later, a year later, when those interest rates shot up to 15%? Talking about three years later. Three years later. And at that point, does that happen overnight where you need to close the doors, or is it just is it that quick where you, it's, you're so fucked? I mean, essentially. It, it, it only takes one bank, and bear in mind that time you had six or seven, eight accounts maybe in different banks, yeah? For instance, NatWest had... We had a loan off NatWest, an overdraft. Something like about 2.8 million, 1.8 million. We had a meeting with our lawyers at NatWest. They were kicking up. And they said, Norman, if you can give us a million by Friday, we won't do anything about it. Friday, I made sure they had a million kid taken off the overdraft, yeah? Yep. Monday morning, they, they called the receivers in on us. That's how banks are dirty devils. Never trust them. So Never what are but them. what are your options at those stage if if you can't trust the banks? Like what would well, you they're, they're what would you do differently in that that situation if if you were to look back on it in ninety one? Like what could have saved your ass then? What could have saved it? Not a lot because the interest on, on everything we were doing, the interest rates were so high, we couldn't afford it anymore. So even forget about the forty million, your your business in general would have been screwed just because of the interest rates alone. At that time, loan to value, I personally, was 140 million. That's what we'd built up. Mm. And we lost a lot. It all went. In a matter of three months, say, people start winding you up. Debts are being called in. And this is from Margaret, Margaret Maggie Thatcher. Yeah. That's all from her. So you're running a bit, at this point, you have, what, 1,000 employees? Now, closer to 2000, but all these people, they're out of work now, right? So not, not only did she affect the people that purchased council housing, but all the people with businesses that were, that had to shut down shop. Were there other businesses similar to yourselves that had to close the doors as well? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So how many people do you think went unemployed from this interest rate issue? I honestly, I don't know. I mean, I was too interested. I had to sell my houses. I houses yeah, you're too right. focused on yourself. Yeah, you're selling everything. But if you were to guess a number, are you talking at like a million people, half a million people lost their job directly from this interest rate issue? Like a little story. I phoned my accountant one day. I said, John, there's loads of problems going on. He said, Norman, sell everything. I said, well, let's meet. And he said, I can't. I'm on my way to the airport now, and I ain't coming back again. <laughs> and he didn't. I never saw him again after that. Where did he go? You don't know. Yeah, he was Israel. Oh. Okay. He was a good Jewish boy. Yeah. Knew his stuff. Never came back again. That was the end of that. Yeah. I uh, sold my house, two houses, three houses. Moved into a rented house. In, uh, yeah, so at this point, you've got to close the, the, the... Everything's the, gone. And... Um, What's going through your mind when all this is happening? Is it beyond the stress? I mean, are you thinking next steps? Like, are you, what is your next move? What's going on? What was going on with you? I was still working, if you like, hand in hand with the banks, seeing what we could save from it, yeah? Yeah. 
we had an offer from a German bank. The, the offer was quite simple. Don't wind the business up. Mr. Barclays, Lloyd's, NatWest, whoever. Leave it as it is. We will give you, you hold the security. We will finance appeals, my business, to, to finish all these deals off. You're still holding the security member. And when we sell it, we'll be a three-way split between you, the German bank, and appeals. Lloyd's Bank said no. Mm. Now, the difference is this. On Houghton Hall Park alone, they would have received something like about seven, eight million. And they still had a share of the profits when the deal was finished, which would have been another 20, 30, Christ, that would have been another 50 million, yeah? They said no. Three years later, and by the mind, that 50 million would have been just Houghton Hall Park, there were the other sites that we had as well, right? Three years later, Lloyd sold that site to Wimpy's for three and a half million. So something that three years earlier was worth 36 million. I'd built two buildings on it, one for Boots Pension Fund and one for a company abroad called Holtz Garden Shorts, mm. which would have reduced the value of the site down by from 36 to about 33 million. So 33 million and two years later they sold it to Wimpy's for three and a half million. Mm. So the, these banks, I mean, they're selling property at an undervalu an undervaluation. They just, they just don't care. They just want the cash and then be done with it. It didn't matter to them. I'll tell you for why. Because at that time, the banks were suffering so much, everyone, no one expected them to make a profit. And they weren't. They were writing these figures down. And the funny thing was, because I, I traced this through Lloyds Bank, obviously, because it's personal to me. So that's two or three years. Nobody made any money. The banks weren't making money at all. The returns were terrible. Three years later, when they sold that site, they put it at the end as a profit, three and a half million profit. They'd lost mm. 20, 37 million. But then they, they, they put they that three and a half million as profit, yeah. And that's why it's. In the development world, everybody has to borrow money. It's a big money game, yeah. Our gearing was 45%, the norm was more like 85, 95% and we were still in trouble. Only because if I'd gone public, then I could have put more funds on the market, more sold more shares and got out of trouble that way. So you reach the stage where I was unlucky. We were, when we were going to go public, and we were, we were forming, and we haven't, we'd had our meetings for 12, 18 months with the press and all that sort of business, yeah? You know, the way you build it up. Yep. Had, we, had we not had the offer from John Lang that would have speeded up, we would have been all right. So, so circumstances as well. A lot of your competitors that survived this this interest rate issue were they public at the time, and that's what kind of kept them. Uh, if, being they, able if, to if they were public, I mean, for instance, the likes of, uh, of Wimpy, they were suffering. John Langs was suffering. Everybody was suffering. Nobody could pay bills anymore. It just got ridiculous. Uh, how long did that go on for before things settled down? Two, three years. Two, three years. Mm -hmm. And was that was there like an outcry from the businesses to to? Oh, to, geez, yeah, I mean, it was terrible. And the other thing was, in them days, you could, the bigger companies, which is also making it hard for smaller companies to survive, the bigger companies were never paying on time either. But what was the agenda? Because it sounds like at the end of the day, the winners were the banks. 
too big to fail. Hmm? Too big to fail. Mm. You've heard that now in your lifetime, right? <laughs> and it was the same in them days. Yeah. Too big to fail. And then what they did, which, which companies weren't allowed to do, I call it they had a dirty bank and a good bank. The bad bank and a good bank. Do you remember that? No. They're in trouble. And let's say they've got bad assets worth 600 million. They've got good assets worth a trillion. A billion, rather, right? Form two banks. One bank takes the bad stuff and the other bank takes the good stuff. And th they did this? They did it. They did it, in, they a, did it years later. An example of a bank that did that and they split and who, they, who did they become? You look it up, you see it. They, mm. they called them good banks and bad banks. Mm. And maybe slowly they'd pay that debt down somehow or write it off, I don't so know. They're just trimming off the fat. And now, I, I wouldn't be allowed to do that. The receivers wouldn't let me do that. Mm. Say, well, look, Lloyd's have got trouble, so take that. It's a bad bank. But we've got lots of good stuff and we keep the good stuff, like hell. Why do you think they can do that, these banks? Is it because they're working all Sim together anyway? Simply too, of course it is. Too big to fail. Mm. And it was an end of a nice story. So, and I think everyone's aware of, of, of the banks and, and, I mean, we've seen that from the crash in 2008 with the real estate market. I mean, they're all in bed with each other. They can't fail. At this point, 1990, the company's gone skin. You're planning your next move. Well, for three years, I worked with the banks and the receivers. Just trying to figure shit out, trying to... Yeah. And then we start with the revenue. The one of the last debts I paid was one I called a million for VAT. I went through an IVA. Didn't go bankrupt, went through an IVA. And we owed the inland revenue 125,000. I mean, nothing in, in, in the overall picture, yeah? And they chased me for five, six years. And at one stage, they put a demand on. Bear, bear in mind, I went in 91. So three years later, I've been working with the banks, trying to sort things out, giving help with the receivers wherever I could. And I earned nothing. They put a demand on me mm. for £868,000 tax bill. And I said to this guy at one of the meetings, where do you get this figure from? He said, well... We think it's what you're capable of earning. I said, you're absolutely right. And I'll do it again. And I'll see you don't see a penny of it. <laughs> now, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but that was the way I felt at the time. And a demand, is this meaning you're going to have to pay it at some point in your life, even if you've gone bankrupt or... No, we eventually settled three, four years after that. Yeah. About 28,000. And even then, I didn't own that. I didn't work, for Christ's sake. Yeah. I'd lost money. So these three years, you're dealing with the bank, you're dealing with uh, accounts, uh, accounts receivers. To, account receivers who you need to pay off, um, clients that you owe money to. No, we don't pay them off. They take the assets. Ah, okay. Now they're in charge of the assets. So they make sure that... So they're let me tell you what they do first. They take their money first. Yeah. And then they sell other things off. And But they've taken all your buildings, uh, mm. all, all your assets completely. Everything. trying to sell that off. And at this so this point we'll jump a bit ahead, and I th I think this is a, an interesting part of the story. You've well, I, I'll let you tell it so I don't give it, give it away. So you, you you've moved into this house, and who are you living with? And let let's talk about that a little bit because I think it's it's quite interesting. I moved in 
I, I rented a house from a friend of mine. Yeah. I thought he owned it, but he didn't. He had just got married, and he went to Ibiza, or somewhere like that anyway. So I paid him two years' rent up front. And I'm sitting there with, with my girlfriend one day in, in this little house in uh, Fulham, Pastors Green actually, and there's a knock on the door, and there's an old woman there with a guy. And she said, can I come in? I said, why, are you not feeling well enough? She said, no, it's, this is my house. I said, come in, I don't think so, it's so-and-so's house. Again, I won't mention his name. Yeah. She said, he's my nephew. It's my house. He only rents it. I said, really? So the guy that she was with turned a bit on. She said, you've got to go. You've got to leave. I said, I've paid rent for two years and I'm staying out. He said, I don't think so. You'll be gone in a week. I said, well, I'll wait and see. He couldn't get rid of me because I was a protected tenant, believe it or not. Yeah? Although I'd only been there a short while. But I was, a in them days, a protected tenant. So I stayed there for... The two years that I paid the rent, he realised the the, ne the the other nephew that he was going to lose. What what he, he couldn't get me out, and not only was I protected ten, but under that law, he has to give me a discount on when I buy it. <laughs> so I bought the house and got a forty percent discount, which was very nice. Stayed there for nineteen years. Sold it for a couple of minutes. Th this house. No, at this point, I, you were telling me that some you started to live with uh, another guy. This is a, a different. Is this, this is before that or after that? Oh no! Are you talking about uh, Simon? Yeah. This was just a went skin. That's going back. Okay. He also had a financial problem at the time. So. This is, he was living in this house or it's a different No, house? no, 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 no. I'm living in, uh, I was living in Parsons Green. Okay. Simon Carroll was one of those that suffered with the mortgage rate going up. You couldn't afford it. I mean, you can't. If you're, if you're paying, let's say, 3% is, is £100 a month, you suddenly can't pay £600 a month. You haven't got it coming in. So let, let's explain that a bit, a bit more in case it slipped by. You're living with the Simon Cowell. No, 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 oh, no. I was living in a house in Arsenal yeah. Green on my own. Correct. He had a house in just down the road, in New King's Road. Yes. Off of, off of New King's Road. He had to get out of his house. Mm. So I'd met Simon before through his brother, Nicholas. I knew Nicholas because of his wife, and my girlfriend, they were dancers, and they knew each other. So we were, when times were good, I, was, I knew Nicholas for ages. But when it all went sour, he suffered as well, because his business went down the swanny as well. So we started to, uh, we got together for a while, yeah? And it's quite funny, I mean, I can't, I can't no, I, <laughs> yeah, it was funny, it was a good time. Well, it was a sad time in some ways, we had funny moments in it, you know? Mm. And we started uh, for a while. Lived in his, in Simon and Nicholas's mother's house. So she had a beautiful house in St John's Wood. And for a short while, we we had a we lived in the ground floor flat. And uh, just light-hearted stories. Uh, sometime we skint. 
and we're going to go around to Domino to a pizza pizza express around the corner. Four of us had a, something to eat, yeah. And I've got a couple of quid on me, it's all. Yeah? Simon rolls up in a taxi. He said, You got any money? I went, Yeah, he said, I'll oh, give us that fiver. Give it to the taxi driver. I said, Hey, that was for the pizza. He went, We've got to find. We, anyway, we found some money. We had a pizza together, mm. but it was comical because one night we have a friend come over to see us. A, he's a little actor guy, lovely guy, lovely guy, good friend of mine, Mark, good actor. And as he's leaving to go back home, he sits in the back of a taxi. And Simon opened the back door and gave me a kiss on the lips. Good night, good night, darling. It's in the way you had years, yeah. Yeah. Little Mark said to him next day, worst taxi driver I've ever had in my life. That guy was calling me a queer all the way home. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, yes, it's a good time. We had, it was funny because many stories that I won't tell. But it was good. For, and I lived in this house. And Simon was working around the corner in for NBC, record people. And he was always a very clever guy, Simon. He knew exactly what he was doing. I admire him greatly for what he's done. And good luck to him. He's earned... So how long were you guys were in contact? You were pretty close for a year, or? A couple of years. A couple of years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, you also mentioned that he wrote a book, and he, he mentioned you in the book as well, didn't he? I don't think he did, did he? Well, I, don't, I, think, I don't think he's written a book, has he? I thought he's written a book. I think you were saying something like this. He, he didn't mention you specific, specifically, but uh, maybe some stories. Okay, so so at at this point, um, we're getting still into the early nineties, early ninety two, ninety three. What what was the next move for you to kind of bring it all back? That's still alive, and that's why I can't go that further. Well, we, we, are still yeah, still we won't get into the the two thousands, but I mean prior to. Uh, Let's call it. Like, what do we call it? Like your your comeback in business and 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 uh, getting back to where you were. And maybe what you did or what were the steps that you took to to make that happen? Somebody approached me. He was in. Uh, it was possible he was going to end up going to prison for something. Mm. And he said, look, I've got these things on the go. If I do end up in Nick, could you look after them for me? And we'll get together as a business proposition. Because, you know, I think I've done something silly, right? So we got together and we're talking about certain things we, we can do. He gets his... Uh, he didn't get prison sentence. He got away with it but it must have been near the bone for him to admit that he might well end up there, yeah? So we went to Manchester one day together, no money, to buy a business. Went to PricewaterhouseCooper to buy a computer business. Now, you know I've got iron with computers, right? <laughs> so at the very end, we were talking to these two guys that owned the business in Manchester, Vice Warden's office. 
And it, they obviously twig we knew nothing about computers. And they said, no, we're not doing it. So we had a nice lunch and leaving the offices. And the guy from Price Ward, I said, uh, tell it is for sale, if you're interested. Some petrol filling stations. Mm. And it was from that little thing there that we grew into something that happened. From the, these... these uh, so it's getting back into... Um, Development and you're 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 purchasing these these uh, petrol stations and we talked no, about I couldn't, uh, no, I couldn't purchase them I had no money. We were, you were talking about you were dealing with airspace. Are you allowed to talk about that? Mm, not really. So it, it was it was difficult because we had no money. Mm. Yes. That's no, I can't talk about that part of it. That that part that um, can get me into trouble. The 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 commercial side. What we've talked about before. You're not allowed to. Okay. Well, I'll keep those stories for myself. Mm. But uh, maybe maybe a couple people they need to. Uh <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. been good. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's got to do what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the fight isn't yet over. No. Ah, you're still fighting. You're doing yeah. fine. That's no, good. I mean, I'm not bothered at all. It's fine. So what? Um, when when did you first come to Thailand? When did you first come to Phuket? I came in twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, it's been twenty years now, right? No, sorry. Oh, 2000, 2000, I was going to say two thousand. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe there's something else we can't talk about. <laughs> um, you came in two thousand. To be honest, you? that's a little story I could tell you. It's the truth. Yep. I'd gone to France for the weekend to see a girlfriend, and we had a beautiful day on the beach. We went to a place in uh, Cannes. A beautiful restaurant with friends of mine who owned a hotel called the Royal with this girl I'd met. Beautiful meal, went back to the hotel, had a lovely time. Next morning I felt chest pain. And I said to John who owned the Royal, uh, I need a chemist shop. He said they're closed on a weekend, but we can go to a clinic. So I went to the clinic and I said to the guy, I just need some. Digestion tablets. He said, what for? I said, I've got a little pain here. He said, take your shirt off. I said, you're not gay, are you? He said, no, I'm not gay. Just yeah. take your shirt off. And he put these things on me. He said, you've got a problem. Anyway, and cut long story short, I ended up in hospital. The girlfriend's still in the hotel in bed. And I rang her to, rang her to say, look, I'm in hospital. I've got a problem with my heart. What'd you do to me last night? <laughs> she said. She said. She said. John's in hospital with a heart attack. I said, No, me. She said, Was I that good last night? I said, You must have been. <laughs> <laughs> so I stayed there for ten days. Right? You, in you, you had days. a heart attack, or no? Was, I had a. Uh, I did. It was, it was. I didn't know what it was at that night, but it was angina, mm. blocking of the arteries, and they tried to put a stent to me, and they they messed it up over there. Yeah? So they wouldn't let me fly. I was in hospital 10 days and they put these, they, they put these stents in, but put them in badly, yeah? The insurance company's going to pay for this operation now because I've got private medical insurance and they won't let me fly home alone. They send a guy down from, a young doctor down from uh, Paris to pick me up in a uh, hotel. So he said to me, can I come down about 2 o'clock, Mr Lynch, and we'll get the 4 o'clock flight back to London? I said, yeah, that's fine. He said, well, where do I come? 
I said, you come to the, I'll give him the name of the hotel. And he went, oh, can I come at eight o'clock in the morning? So I said, yeah, if you want. Why? He said, I'll tell you when I come. So he came down. He said, I've, I was brought up, you'd come down here for holidays to, to, to Cannes. And you'd walk along the promenade, right? And we'd see people in this hotel sitting on the beach having breakfast. And I always wanted to do it. So when you said that's where you are, I thought, oh, I'm going I'm to do it. Mm. And he was a very, very nice guy. So we're sitting there talking, and I said to him, listen, they've put me on a diet. I've never been on a diet in my life. I don't understand. It's so complicated. He said, it isn't. It's simple. I said, it isn't. It's fucking complicated. He said, listen, it's simple. If it's nice, you can no longer have it. (laughs) (laughs) And he was absolutely right. Ever since then, of all the things I really, really like, I've had to cut down on, but Mm. eventually got better. But yeah, that was a strange time. So th- this at this point is this this is coming together what what which led you to Phuket in early two thousand yeah because it was a winter time and I thought I need I got back to England they reoperated on me and they couldn't get into the the thing that needed a stent the vein that needed a stent was so small the guy over here was brilliant and he tried two or three times and he couldn't get. Into it. And he said to me, well, look, it's going to be painful, but it can never kill you because it's too small. So put up with it. So I came over here in the wintertime and I found ever since then the, the cold weather's affected my chest. So I came over here with uh, another partner, right? different partner yep. on this latest business. We went to Koh Samui and it started raining. And he had never been here before. And it rained and it rained and it rained. And after about five days, he, he he was in one room, I'm in another. He picked the phone and said, get me out of here. I can't stand this rain anymore. So he went to Bangkok, had a few nice days in Bangkok, packed to, to, to come home, to go home. And I'm sitting there with breakfast, breakfast with him. I said to him, I'm not going. He said, you're not going where? I said, I'm not going home. He said, where are you going to go? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to. I'm not going home, it's too cold. You go and I'll see you in a few weeks' time. I went to the travel agent in... Uh, Hotel. I think I was in the uh, banking tree in Bangkok. So, so you you were you're in Koh Samui, and then you went to Bangkok. Yes, yeah, and you're staying at the him. the banyan tree there. Okay. So I go to the travel agent in the banyan tree, and I said, "Look, I want to stay in. I don't want to go home yet. Maybe I'll go to Vietnam or somewhere like that." She said, no, "Why don't you stay in Thailand with us, and I'll get you a nice room somewhere." So she. Went back a couple of late. She said, I've got your room in the banyan tree down here. Right, at the, pretty much at the Laguna Golf. Yeah. At the Laguna Golf. The Laguna Golf. Yeah. I said, oh, how much is that? She 2009. I went, this is in the year 2000. 2009. I said, you mean a week? She said, no, a night. U.S. or bought? Obviously, U.S. U.S., yeah. I said, why is it so expensive? Well, she said, well, you've got your own villa and a swimming pool. I said, don't swim. I don't want it. So... She sent me to another hotel at uh, Cap de, Cap de Antibes. Not Cap de Antibes. Cap, Cap, Cap uh, Yamu, Cap, Cap Panama? Panama. Panama. Panama Hotel. Panama, okay. And again, I took a little girl from the Philippines. We arrived there. It was boring. She said, I'm not staying there. So I got a taxi, and uh, we ended up in the Holiday Inn. I stayed there for a year. The Holiday Inn in Patong? In Patong. In Patong. Stayed there for a year with her. Not with her. She went back, yeah, to, she went back. to college after a while. Yeah. And I stayed there. Yeah. And so this is still early, kind of happening all at the same time. All, early all two- around the two, 2002. This is now maybe 
December and January 2000. 2000, yeah. Yeah. And now, now you're, you're in Patong. You're staying, you stayed at the Holiday Inn for a, a year. Now, I remember you telling me you ended up, you were living in Patong for a while. 13 years. 13 years. Went to the house. Um, were you going back and forth between the UK quite yeah. often? How, how, many, how long would I'd you spend over here? Maximum twice a year. Because the business I was now doing or trying to do, uh, I could do from home. Yeah. I could do it anywhere. All I need is a computer. As bad as I am a computer, all I need is a, a laptop, yeah, and I can do it. I had people back in uh, England, my son, looking after things back this end. And I'd come back from important meetings, and I'd come return back to Paquette when I didn't, wasn't needed uh, back in the UK, yeah. And I did that for, say, you lived in that house for 13 years. Mm. Then moved up here with, uh, into Ben, ben Chinam with Sean, the golf pro. Yep. Stayed there for just about a year and a half and then moved on to Laguna, and that's where I've been ever since. And how, so then you're here before the tsunami. Did you see a difference before and after? Oh, massive, yeah. yeah. Specifically, like, what, what, was the, what is the difference before and, and after, maybe just in terms of the whole dynamic of Phuket and, and tourism in general? The day of the tsunami... Bear in mind, I'd had this problem with my heart, yeah? Were you here during the tsunami? Yeah, yeah. In Phuket? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm lying in bed, and uh, it was a shaking. And to be honest, I thought it was my blood pressure pl playing up there. Yeah? Mm. And the guy from Bangkok went, he said, no, when how's Phuket? I went, what do you mean, how's Phuket? He went, they're clearing us out of the tall buildings up here because there's this tsunami. I said, what's a tsunami? He said, a big tidal wave and an earthquake. I went, Jeez, I thought it was a, my blood pressure. Now, my then-girlfriend had gone back to the Philippines, yeah. and I'd promised to go and get a ticket to come back, yeah? So I got in my car, and I'm driving out of down Soy Sansibai. Right in Patong. Right in the centre of Patong. Yeah. Yeah. Right opposite Bangalore Road, so yes. Soy Sansibai. Yeah. And I passed the Yorkshire Inn. And the guy that had the Yorkshire Inn at the moment said to me, Norman, where are you going? I went, I'm just going to go down and get a ticket for Nicole to come back. He said, you're... You can't do that. I said, she ain't, she ain't that bird. <laughs> he said, no, you said he gets it. Leave the car then. Just walk to the end of Sansibai. There was a boat on the crossroads. You know, so Sansibai and Road. Yeah. And these motorbike things that on the water, they were all on the road. The wave had come right over. Yeah. I walked down Bangalore Road. I bumped into, God bless him, little Stevie Feinberg. And the, the havoc was unbelievable. You, you could not believe the things we were seeing. And the very next day, I remember walking down Beach Road and there was a food hall underneath, a shop, ocean. It was called the ocean. And the ground floor, the, the basement rather, was uh, all goods, uh, a grocery place there. The people had gone in morning before, to fill the shelves up, the staff. Two cars had been swept down the steps by the tsunami, jammed the doors closed. Everyone in there was dead. Because it just it's filled up with water and drunk. And when we went there to say the following morning after tsunami, the divers were there bringing these bodies out, and I promise you, being sick, and then going back in and doing it and bringing them all out. It was awful. Fucking hell. It was awful. It was a hell of a state. It was a real, real mess. And how, you just had no, 
when you're driving around the wave it, it's done its damage it's gone now and you're you're driving around not really understanding what's going on or my landlord when the tsunami hit was driving down through Callum yep. with a girl in the car his car got brushed out to sea but if you if you know Callum you'll see all the rocks there yeah he got stuck on the rocks so we took him out there and then he got stuck they got out and the tsunami was going and she, he had to grab her and swim her back into to shore. It was, it, was, it was murder going on. But it just kept coming. I mean, that's usually, it comes and goes, it, it's in and out. It's in and out in no time at all. Mm. It only comes in the once. Oh, okay. It, what happens, it goes out, it's empty. Yeah. And the tsunami is coming afterwards. For instance, I had uh, people I knew went out on a boat they never felt it. They were about seven or eight miles out, never felt a thing. Yeah. Only heard about it on the radio when they're coming back in. But the whole of, of Phuket changed that, that, that day. It really did. But where you were living in Patong, you were on like a, a higher story or? No, I was, uh, I, my house was on the ground floor. But you were further back, so the further back, it, so never, it, it never it, made it, it that it far. It didn't hit the house, no. No, it, it didn't hit the house. And again, about 10 days after that, there was a panic one night. Somebody shouted, there's another tsunami coming, and everyone rushed out again and went up the mountainside, you know. Yeah. Back of Phuket there. It was awful. And I made the mistake after the tsunami hit on the one day. Three days later, I went up to, uh, off, the bridge, off the bridge, up to Panya, and made the mistake of going into a, a church thing there where all the bodies were laid out. Oh, God, yeah, because it hit there quite hard. It's terrible. Uh, much worse there than here. Kalak. Kalak, there's really a bad. massive memorial out there because they, it's just an open beach, right? And apparently the tsunami kind of just flew right through that place. When I drove back home, I must have counted 150 lorries going in the other way full of coffins. I promise you. Masses and masses of them. It was a terrible, terrible second situation. Felt very sorry for And me. did you stay? Did you stay much longer after the tsunami yeah. or did you quickly kind of fly out or no, did you, you, no, you stayed it. through the, the havoc mm -hmm. and what was going on also like around the island like besides the grieving were people just trying to clean up the island or what, what was happening everybody exactly? was trying to help where they could and in fact JJ's which is now the Soul Shack mm. it was JJ's because a guy called John was renting it as a bar a very successful bar and he put on a Friday night, charity night, and everything, once he reached a quarter of a million peso, uh, uh, baht, he was giving it to the people in uh, Tao there to rebuild their houses because them houses have just got demolished. slaughtered. Yeah, demolished. Right here in Bangtao, this, this whole end? This whole area. The, the area I'm talking about was, was go down at the end of Syrian Beach here, and then as, as a Bangtao, and you enter into Bangtao, there's all them little houses there on, along the front of it. Yeah, and you can tell because there is some new development there now, and I could imagine that that probably that whole area would have been just pretty much wiped out. But it, there are some villages back there. I, I heard from another friend that he stayed in one of those houses. It was okay, maybe because of his location in Bangtao, but he said the whole house filled with water. Yeah, and he had to like go up on the roof and and kind of wait it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I think we actually had a guy on was. It, 
not our last podcast, the one before he, Sean Stenning, he works uh, for Five Star Marine. Well, it's his company and he's doing um, a lot of the, the uh, what is it, COVID charity food for the villages around the island. And yeah, See, I, the guy that gets to be the, the people coming every morning, 1,400 of them. Yeah. Charity, and they make up the food parcels. Yeah, yeah. He, he, I saw it on, uh, on one of the reports on the paper. Yeah, so yeah. we had him on the podcast two episodes ago, and he explained... He did a good job, obviously. Yeah, yeah he explained I didn't know, it. I didn't know that we were still in need of it, though. Yeah, apparently 48,000 people a day don't have food here on the island. How many? 48,000. Jesus, where, yeah. where, where are they? Mostly where? in the villages. It could be Rawai. It could be the other side, of, especially the marina side of the island, because those, those marina sides... It, they rely, relied on tourism from, like, captains of boats, engineers, uh, people working at the airport. Like, that's the industry of that side of the island. I'm talking, like, Alpo Marina, Bangrong, like, when you jump off to go to uh, these other small islands. Uh, they're devastated. Because when, they fir- when, when we first got blocked down over a year ago now, I was driving back one day from somewhere. I don't know where I was coming back from, but I passed the corner restaurant. And I saw a big queue of people out there. And I said to somebody that day at the golf club, what, what are they queuing up for? He said, food. I said, Jesus, you're joking. Yeah. And for a couple of weeks after that, I was going round to him. There's a chicken place in opposite. Just give him money each day so they can make up these food packages, you know. To help at least, like, but I didn't realise it was still going on. Yeah, it's going on. It's quite bad. I mean, he try. I think they're doing it um, once a week now, but there's only so many hands, and and uh, yeah, it's not so simple. So they're trying to get the government and the. I, th- I think the government's getting more involved to help with the transportation. That's that's one of the issues he was saying. I know it was bad because I remember we gave also gave money to uh, the caddies on Laguna. Yeah. There's 181 caddies that work for Laguna at one stage or another or at any one time. And three girls in particular collected enough money to give everyone a food bag. Mm. And the whole 81, 181 got something. Anyway. But I was, was a bit shocked that uh, I didn't think the government helped out. Actually. Yeah, and, it, and it's the problem is it's, at the end of the day, it's just a, it's a Band-Aid on the wound. It's, yeah. not, it's not really... Until tourism comes back, there's not much you can really do here, right? I mean, no, I feel very, very sorry for people trying to earn a living in this in these circumstances. It's it's incredible. Yeah, uh, but I think most people are helping out wherever they can. They're doing their own thing. Yeah, and then that's I mean, this the island is the industry is ninety percent tourism. So without tourists, what do you do? Right. Well, but, that's it. Yeah, you know, that is what it is. So uh, after the the tsunami, this how long did it take? to Phuket come back from that was it quite quick a, a year or so because even so actually Sean said something interesting when he was on the podcast he said he was in university at the time he's about 35 36 so he was telling me that during that university when the tsunami hit here he wasn't here yet but they were doing uh, a relief fund um for Phuket and he said most of the world they were also doing relief funds so a lot of money was coming from international communities into Phuket to you know, fix the problem. So, but the issue is, with COVID, everyone's facing the it, same, same, problem. S- same problem. So there's no relief funds. Uh, I mean, there's issues in Canada. So you don't have you know, people that may have helped 
during the tsunami, they can't be helping Phuket now. So it's this the is a bit of an issue. The only people that can help now is the governments because it is a worldwide it's a pandemic. Yeah. And in fact, this morning, I learnt that in the UK, they've spent three hundred and sixty-two billion billion pounds. Yeah. On COVID problems, giving people money every month, uh, the bounce back loans and all that sort of business. Yeah. The furlough loans, all that sort of stuff. 362 billion in debt now. Yeah, and now that's, that's got to be paid back somehow. And it's, it's enormous. But they're the only ones that can do it. The only governments can do it. They're right. I mean, the people that were helping out during the tsunami and everyone around here was helping in the tsunami, they've now hit, hit themselves. Mm. I mean, Fritz, take the corner restaurant, which I talked about just now. He's closed. Yeah. So he was doing what he could to help. Yeah, because the location. He can't do okay. it forever. Yeah. He just hasn't got the money to do it forever, you know. And did did you did you see a quick turnaround? Like after the tsunami, did you stick around? Did you go back to the UK? A year no, later, I stayed you, here. You, no, you no, st- I stayed here. You stayed for yeah. a couple years, and and you saw it come back together. And and how was that first? Would well, since you've been here for both the tsunami and COVID, what was worth worse economically? Do you feel COVID? You, Take tsunami. It happened. It was over and it finished. People knew what they had to do to put things back into shape. It wasn't funny. It wasn't clever. It was very, very sad. But it was over in a matter of hours. COVID has been with us now for nearly 18 months and we still don't know when it's going to end. Mm. You are trying to make decisions after the tsunami, you knew what you had to do. We had to rebuild these houses. You had to buy a new car because a lot of cars got absolutely ruined and that was an insurance claim. So you knew what you had to do. But with COVID, even today, we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when it's over. How do you make decisions about the future when you don't know what the future is holding? So today, I've heard, as I said just now, 362 billion the English government's given out is that the end of it? I doubt it they're talking about having to tax us a bit more to get the money back in I understand that but when is it going to end? and that's the problem with the insurgency it's, it's, it's un, it's there's a new variation coming over now thanks to Boris Johnson and during that tsunami, tsunami uh, period and, and when you were in here did you have any Thai friends, restaurant owners, people that you connected with in the local economy that it, it affected them, uh, not just economically, but maybe the loss of loved ones. And how did you cope with that or, or deal with that? Or were you, were you um, consoling them? Wherever you could. But I must say that I didn't know many people that had lost their lives in it. Miraculous stories. There was a guy that had a bar by uh, Gracelands. You know the hotel Gracelands? In Patong. In Patong, on, on the beach road. And, and next to Gracelands, or dished down from Graceland, is the Muslim cemetery with a big wall around it. Now, yep. now this guy has a, had a bar, and he went swimming every morning. He got caught up in the tsunami, which brought him over the wall and then sucked him back out again. And he said, Norman... I could see myself smashing into this wall face first because you couldn't swim. And that was me gone. And my face is going to go everywhere. He said, God, just as I've approached the wall, the wall collapsed and I've just 
went out to see her again, it calmed down and I, and I swam back. I mean, he said, you're seconds away from knowing you're going to die. And you're going to die in a way that you can't do anything about it. So my hands were back here and my head was going to go into the brick wall. The way yeah. going out, yeah? He said, just the wall collapsed. And he was right, because I saw the collapse wall collapse for ages. We came up here for golf at Laguna, got to Camilla. And as you exit Camilla, there was a big pond on the right. And there was a minibus in there, with buddies in it. And I was there the morning, they were bringing the minibus out. And in the hotel where I was living, where I lived for a year, there was a tuk-tuk in the swimming pool, because if, you, if the swimming pool was right on Beach Road. There was three guys and a driver in the mini mm. bus, in the, mini, in, in, in the thing, you know, dead. And the, the, none of the water came into your place at that time, so you really never reached the house I was in. I was, I was on, you know the new road now, the third road? Yes. In Patong. Mine was backing up to that wall, so that's mm. where I was. So you're quite far back. So it came up to the main uh, Ratchet Road, on the crossroads by Bangla and, uh, uh, and uh, Soy Sansabai, but it never came... Five minutes to me, no. mm. and did you have many friends on the island? Were you golfing at that time as yeah. well? Yeah, oh, yeah, we, yeah, every, yeah, yeah. Of them. yeah, and no one uh, did anyone have any issues with their homes or, or their businesses? Yeah, I mean, you'd have bars that, that, that would got drenched and sacked and they lost mm. sort of stock and stuff like that. But I say that was oh, you went round and you helped out wherever you could. But I can't say I knew anyone that actually died in the tsunami, no. I mean, I read about it on, on the TV and yeah. we were watching it all the time. For instance, my the phones went down, right? And you couldn't get a mobile phone to work for three or four days. And eventually when my son got older, he said, are you all right? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, mate. He said, fucking hell. Yeah, so he's freaking out for three or yeah. four days. He, they can't even call the hotel. The system went down. Yeah. Couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. It was just a very nasty time, but you knew what, ha what had to be done. And everybody that wasn't affected helped. So this happened, it happened on Christmas Eve 2004. And how quick was everything kind of put back together? Within six months, a year? Some places took longer than others. I mean, there was a hotel up at Cowluck that they just finished, and it got literally... Blasted, so that would have taken years to rebuild. Yeah. But the normal, you know, the little shops you see around the town, I mean, they're very versatile. Like a couple of weeks and then things are back to normal again. But it was the fright that was still in people. Mm. Say, so 10 days later, when somebody panicked and shouted, it's an army, that everyone flew again. And I was at home working that night. And a guy called Kevin, a bricklayer from London, rang me. He said, No one went. You, I said, I'm at home. What's the matter? There's an army coming. Get out! And I said, I'm too late. I'm fucking indoors. He said, What are you going to do? I said, I got on the roof. And did you? No, that tsunami never came. I was listening for it. It never came. And it was. It wasn't a second tsunami. It was a panic. Somebody panicking. Yeah. And that. that and you could understand the panic, by the yeah. way. I mean, there were terrible stories. For some reason, at the time, I had to go to the German consul here on uh, on the bypass here. Yeah? And he was talking on the phone about uh, one of the governments sent over a freezer lorry, yeah, to put bodies into. Three years later, some bodies were still in that freezer. They couldn't identify them. Mm. Burmese workers and people like that. No, no form of identification. 
whether they're still there. I guess they're not there now. Yeah. But also when I went up to Cowlack, I saw, you remember the boat? There's a steel uh, boat that got swept in? Yeah. I saw that. Mm. It was a mile and a half inland. I think it's still there. I think they left but it there. But they've ruined it. They've ruined it. They've painted it and they've, it, crashed, it crashed into a forest. So there are broken trees all around. It looked very dramatic. They've taken all the trees away. They've concreted all, all the floor and painted the boat. It's stupid. When I saw it, they should have left it exactly as it was because that's what happened to it. Mm. Now it just looks like a concrete pavement with a boat in it. Yeah, and these places like, uh, I mean, yeah, Calac, it has the memorial. And uh, I, I've never went to the memorial because I'm a bit, uh, I don't really want to kind of go inside and experience that because I've heard it's quite gruesome as well. Um, I've seen some of that stuff in Cambodia where, you know, genocide stuff and it's not, it's a, it's hard to, you don't want you don't, you don't to keep that in the back of your mind either. It's kind of out of mind, you know, out of, out of sight, out of mind. When, do, do you... Go to Calac often anymore for, for even golf or like besides obviously with COVID and you cannot leave the island. Have you have you been the last time traveling I went there, around Thailand? My girlfriend, you know, I've got a daughter now in the Philippines. Yeah. So when they were coming over, we used to go up to a place in Calac where we'd rent a villa, not a villa, it's a small bedroom really, but right in the swimming pool, overlooking the sea. She she loves the sea, she loves swimming. So we'd go up there and that's the last time I went. Uh, so I haven't been there really for a couple of years, I guess. Mm. Though I understand there's a new golf club up there, but I don't want to go off the island at the moment. Yeah, back I, I heard there's there's a new golf club, and uh, right now the prices are really good. Uh, it's in front, but you need the vac- you need the vaccine. You got to go off the island, then you got to deal with that if you get locked out. But I tell you, it was funny at, at the time because when I first came here, I knew nobody. Another girl came over from the Philippines and she wanted to go out. And yeah, so we went out. And I w- walked down the bank of road, went into Soyezy, and there was a guy talking English. And I thought, oh, that's good. So I started chatting to him, yeah. He had Freddy's Bar. It's called Freddy's Bar. And he had a partner called Stevie, Stevie Feinberg. So I was going in there every night and spending some money on the girls on the digital yeah, yeah. goes on, you know. Yeah, and after three or four weeks, weeks, I'm still on my own, and I went down to uh, Nihon on the beach there. Phone rang. Stevie Feinberg from the Freddy's Bar. He said, "Ryan," and I said, uh, "From the beach down at uh, Ryan, what's it called?" He said, "I'd like to come down and buy your lunch." I said, "What for?" He said, "Well, you come in every night. You're looking after the girls. You're spending a few quidlets." My wife saying, "Thanks." I said, all right, come over. Mm. So we come over. Now, this is the first time we were able to talk when we're not in a bar where you where the conversation is girls and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So he said to me, what did you do for a living back home? And I said, oh, bits and bobs of this and that. What about you? He said, oh, well, I had art metalwork company. I said, doing what? He said, do all sorts fancy metalwork, mainly for shop vets. So, yeah. He said, so what was the name of your company? I said, appeals. He went, you owe me 650,000. I said, you're fucking joking. I've lost 140 million. You're 160, you're 50 grand <laughs> fucking gone, mate. <laughs> and that was true. He said, you know, I, I could never get near you. All your fucking directors were, were protecting you all the time. We could never get near you, you know, to take you out and get to know you, try and get a bit more business out of you. 
So we started laughing and joking about it, yeah? and we become good friends. Yeah. I'm going back to London one day, and he said to me, "No, do us a favour. Could you buy me a tailor-made driver when you're back in England? It's, a, it's more expensive in Thailand, right?" Yeah. So I said, "Yeah." So I went over, and I've come back, and I've got him with this driver. And I said to him, "I said, here's a driver, Steve." He said, "Ah, uh, oh, thanks. I'm out I said, "No, forget it." He said, "What size shoes do you wear?" I said, "42." Why? He said, I bought a pair of shoes and they gave me the wrong size and they're 42, I'm only, whatever, 38 or something. He said, golf shoes, do you want them? I said, yeah, okay. So we go out a few nights late when we're getting pissed. He says to this the group of people, he said, he fucking owes me 650 grand and can't fucking pay me. I said, hang on, I gave you a fucking driver. He said, yeah, but I gave you a pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and we've, we've laughed about it fucking many times, but it was, it was fucking true. I never knew him in, in, in London. All them years I had the business in London, never knew him at all. Met him out here. It's a, it's a small world when you kind of come over here. It is when you come here, yeah. Run into yeah. the most yeah. random. Absolutely, yeah. And he's, uh, I'm assuming he's no longer... He died of yeah. cancer three years ago. Yeah. Uh, so he was one of your first friends when you first kind of... Yeah, and like he was a good friend. He was a nice friend. And it was him who introduced me to Ronnie, you know, of uh, yeah. Irish Times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were there last night having... In fact, I, I financed his, uh, his bar for him, uh, Stephen Feinberg, when he moved, moved from Freddy's Bar into Bunny Bar. He had this, is, this is all still on Bangla? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so that was, he, he was a nice guy. I liked Steve. He was very good. And he, uh, his wife's still here or no no idea? No, he, he was divorced when he came out. Oh, okay. He, he had he had a tie that's what girl I mean, yeah, he lived with yeah. yeah but no she's gone back where she's gone back to now mm, okay okay um we'll we'll almost wrap it up and we'll kind of I, I just wanted to ask a couple two other questions and it's nothing crazy anyways um I think what's interesting especially for me in this new generation we got to use email and laptops and we have access to the internet um how did that differentiate during your time in the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s when this technology did not exist and pretty much you're, you're dealing with pen and paper and also running, you know, an operation with o over a thousand people? How did you keep yourself organized? Did you have daily routines? Can you walk us through that a little bit? Because I, I think most people today, like, I can't even fathom uh, how that could be run so smoothly and efficiently without dual screen laptops email instant connection like I, I wouldn't even be able to understand it in them days the biggest difference it was personal you met people you spoke with people i told you how i met tom mccauliffe now he could have gone the other way you could have said you we met we started talking and we became close close friends right up until the time he died, yeah? And everything was on a personal level. I ended up, bear in mind we started this little business years and years earlier, by the time my business went down, Tom McAuliffe, the CEO of Argus, worked for me, their finance director worked for me, and their commercial director worked for me. And while they were working for me, they had another idea that I financed also, because by then I had 17 or 18 companies within the group, yeah. But business then was on a personal level. And you, 
you had to learn how to treat people different. I mean, now, for instance, you take today, you sent me a message. Years ago, you'd have picked the phone up to me. Yeah. Because you, there was no messaging and you'd speak. Now you message, and if I, and now you only saw by chance when you said, Can you make it two o'clock? Yeah. Because my phone doesn't make a noise when a message comes in, or if it does, then the noise is so small you can't hear the bloody thing anyway. But years ago, everything was done on a personal level. And you had to arrange things in advance because you couldn't do it on the spot like you can now. But mainly it was because people, it was just a personal thing. You got on, they liked your personality, they trusted your personality, or they didn't. If they didn't, you didn't get the work. If they trusted you for whatever reason, that was fine. If you built a reputation that said, yeah, this, this guy's going to give you a good job, that was what it was all about. You had to be in our business. I had to be a nasty bastard. We were in a business where all but, say, 3% of our staff were men. And they had to know that if you said, do it, they had to do it. Mm. So that was the, the biggest difference. Today, I must agree, it's, it's much easier. But I mean, things are going to change from this point forward as well because of COVID. It's going to be much quicker. For instance, I used to fly before COVID. I'd be in Dubai three, four times a year because that's where we have uh, certain business interests. Now, the same business interests get discussed over Zoom. Had a, the last Zoom meeting was early last week. The people from the banks come in. My office comes in. I'm over here. If I want Paul in from England, he comes in. And we still discuss things. I mean, I think this is a, is a, is a great asset to any business, yeah? What, what do you feel but is... It is much colder. This yeah, is, is that the difference between uh, these Zoom meetings and, a, you know, a handshake one-on-one -on -one sitting down at a restaurant? It's, it's much colder. It's not as personal. Specifically, what is, is it the, the, the subtle mannerisms that you could pick yeah. up on someone's uh, during that conversation that, you know, you might interpret the wrong way? And if you did say something that was misunderstood, you could clear it up immediately. Whereas when with these Zoom meetings, you've got to wait your turn to come in and out. And by the time you... The last time, for instance, we got 40 minutes at a time, right? Because there's more than one... It's not a one-for-one -one meeting. So you only get 40 minutes and then you, they, you break off and you've got to go back again, right? And there was something I wanted to ask and it, it broke off. So I rang back my office and said, look, I forgot to ask him X, Y, and Z. He said, I'll, I'll ask him when I come back to you. That was over 10 days ago. It's not come back yet. Yeah. Whereas if, if you're there live, you don't forget these things. You do it straight away. In many, many respects, I suppose, this is uh, a more efficient way of doing business. Every meeting that was organised, somebody had to travel to it. When I was dealing with uh, Umdash in Austria, the number of times I flew out there was loads of times, yeah? You had things to discuss with people. It cost money when you were sending people out there to test things that were right. For instance, we would, uh, first time we've ever done business with uh, Selfridges, I took out their building manager to Austria. So you're a day travelling there, you're a day there, and you're travelling back. It's three days. That's all, and there's, say, four or five of you. Plus it's all costing money. 
hotels, transportation. No, you wouldn't have to do it. Yeah. Now you could send pictures of the stuff over, yeah? I can remember, for instance, somebody coming in my office and saying, Norman, all this business going back and forward to Austria, we've got a machine here called a facsimile machine. I said, what's that? He said, well, they can send a drawing docu- over to us. A document. Us. I said, don't be silly. What are you talking about? He said, no, we, we bought it. We've we, we got on trial. Come and see it. So I went out and said, this is a fucking big machine there. They got on the phone and said, right, send it. But you had to have, that to be the same machine. So send it and the, and the receiver had to be the same. They'd phone it, so I'd send it over. Sit there. About two minutes later, this, blah, 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 blah. this drawing comes and I said, fucking hell. Can't believe it. Amazing. Now, it's old-fashioned, isn't it? Yeah. It's gone. Didn't stay around that it, long. No. But at the time, the first per- people ever used it were the police. They put your mugshot on it and sent it to another police station. They were the first ones to use facsimile machines. But now, but that, the big difference was it was personal. And I quite enjoyed it that way as well. Because you'd go out drinking. you get drunk yeah. together, right? Or you get drunk together. For instance, I would do things. I would take clients to a restaurant. And I'd say, what do you want to drink? And I said, I'll have a gin and a tonic. Now, the maitre d' knew me. And he knew he'd put no gin in my tonic. Mm. And gin and tonic, you didn't looked exactly the same, right? And I was drinking tonic. They were drinking gins and tonics and whiskeys, whatever they were drinking, right? And the drunker they got, the more they spoke. And I was stone cold sober. So I knew exactly what I was doing. And you had your intention of trying to get some sort of information that evening. Yeah. And what happened? Did the maitre d' ever slip up and... No. Each restaurant I went to, I would say to them, now it's, it's a business night. Yes, Mr. Lynch. They understood what that meant. Yeah. So do you think that things are becoming less personal? This is, it's better for business because it's more cost efficient, but now you're losing the... You're not, create, you're not creating stronger relationships faster. So it's kind of, you know, it's... it's yeah, don't, I don't think you get the same relationship, that's all. It's, it's, it, it can't be the same, can it? You know, when, when you can send me a, a fax message, you can send go to a Zoom meeting, you can send pictures around yeah. by the second sort of thing, yeah? It's totally different. I guess it's got to be more efficient, but it's colder. Mm. And I think this pandemic also is going to be the start and it's gonna be a, there's going to be a big upset here. People will no longer have to go to an office five days a week. It won't be necessary. And this has speeded it up. But the moment you say that, then you look at the repercussions of what's going to happen. The major use is people will not have to go into offices. They won't have to go necessarily into shops every day, yeah? These office blocks are built, they're rented out, and they're bought by insurance companies. And the insurance companies are, in fact, your pension funds. That's where they invest the money. So now with these empty office blocks, look at the repercussions. What's going to happen to your pension funds? Because those values on the office blocks are going to drop in the same way that the high streets, because of the tech giants, the high streets are suffering. The only people on Kensington High Street where I live are charity shops, 
betting shops, coffee shops, and patisseries and things like that. The shoe shops are closing. The stores are closing. Them, in, them rents are what funds the pension funds for, for the country. And it's all going to get lower and lower and lower. So there's going to be a massive problem in years to come. And not many years either, two or three years. These are the government pensions in the UK? and No, even private pensions. Mm. A pension fund buys the income from somebody like Tesco. On a bad yield, you'll get, say, a 15% yield. That's it. But if you've got Tesco in, your multiplier is 30-odd years. So let's say they're paying you 100 grand a, 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 a year. It's three, 30 times that is the value of the building. Now that they're not in the high streets anymore, that value is going to disappear because mm-hmm. you can't get anybody to replace it. What's going to happen to that lack of money, that loss of funds? What do you, what do you think will be the long-term uh, issues from this? Pension funds are going to suffer. How you replace that pension fund money, I've got no idea just yet. The tech giants are quite rightly and understand what they're doing, are not paying their due of taxes. They've got to start paying. Or the repercussion is going to get too serious. Yeah, these tech companies, they have, you know, holdings and, well. They do what we all do. <laughs> yeah? Sure. But, but they're, they're, they're so big. Yeah. You know, you're not talking about a turnover. Now, a healthy turnover years ago was 400 million, 500 million, 600 million. Now you're talking billions. 5.6 billion a quarter. I mean, Jesus Christ. Look at chip companies, you know? Yeah. Semiconductor chips. They're normally around 6, 7 billion a quarter. That's a lot of money. Mm. And with all these technologies that, that they're bringing forward, it just means that things are changing. How you how you pay off that change? I don't know what it's go- I don't know what's going to do. I don't know. What if if you if there was a young kid coming up out of out of college and, and just getting to st- get started in business, not the technical aspect of business, but just general? What is your advice for that for that that kid coming up? What would you tell him going forward? There's room for everybody. Another thing that happened in. England, under Tony Blair, he wanted to, everybody to go to university, which is a lot of crap. Certain people don't want to go to university. And we need workers, we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need carpenters. How can you build a house if everyone's going to university? They want to be lawyers mm. or money brokers, yeah? That's no good. There's a spread, everyone is needed, certain things. And right now, if a guy wasn't interested in university, you know what I tell him to do? Go be a plumber. You'll earn a bloody fortune. There's a company in Pimlico called Pimlico Plumbers. Very similar sort of attitude as mine. He's earning big, big money. He's a plumber. He now employs six, seven hundred plumbers. And it's big, big business. There's room for everybody. Yes, we need lawyers. Mm-hmm. You need a certain amount of people to go to university. But you can't say everybody needs to go to university. Tony Blair wanted that. Well, even, even the plumber, they would need some sort of... Uh, if they went to business school, it could be much more an advantage. Like, 
uh, instead of just doing an apprenticeship as a plumber, because even if you just have that trade, if you don't understand the business side of it, it would be quite difficult to run your own business as well. And not everyone's as savvy as, as like, I would say the, the older generation where you guys were kind of just forced to learn it along the way. The, the managing director of Argos was a rugby player called Mike Smith, big tough guy. He knew my background, because obviously before you start giving big business to people, you, you've got to find out about them. And he said to me one day, I'm not being rude, Norman, but you never had an, uh, a college education. I said, no. He said, I did, seven years of it. And yet you're, you're worth all this money and I'm still working for somebody for wages. Why? I said, you know why? You were taught the downfall of things. I never was. I didn't believe it could go wrong. I was stupid. Mm. I thought, you know, I can own, all I can do is I can buy this for one, I can sell it for two, and I'll have the bit in the middle. It was simple. Mm-hmm. Whereas you got taught all the technicalities of what you do, what you want. The story I told you about uh, Eric and his son leaving the university with a business degree. Yeah. Went skint within 18 months. A Jewish fellow said to me years ago, if you can't be clever, be shrewd. If you're shrewd, you'll always have money. And he's absolutely right. Mm. I had the worst education I could have had because I, was, I just wasn't there. I had something else instead. I'm not sure what it was. You didn't get lost in the weeds either of, of, of the... Uh, educational industry of uh, they're pushing that on you and, that, and that's what happens because the the technical side you you can get lost in because it cannot even be applicable 10 years later anyway so better to stay true to especially these days yeah, yeah. yeah. just changing too quick isn't it it's like at the moment now the big thing is ai yeah yeah that's what, now what happens when that really catches on well there'll be a a four-day work week a reduction in jobs and uh, i think people will I don't think there will be that five-day work week once AI is. Uh, that means you've got to pay them more for four days. The money, the money they would have earned in five, you've got to give them now for four, and that may not matter because maybe with AI you're earning good money anyway. Well, maybe that they can be more efficient. Maybe they can wear more hats in a company. Maybe you don't need someone to do, you know, uh, marketing and someone to do sales. You can have someone doing both. Maybe you can have, you know, you can uh, yeah. do do multiple positions in, in your company. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to watch the full video on YouTube, come visit our channel, Fruiting Body Podcast. We can also be found on Instagram at Fruiting Body Podcast. Please be sure to share and follow this podcast with friends and family. Thank you very much.